Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. Built in 1679 by French explorer René de la Salle, the 40-ton Griffin was the first European ship to sail the upper Great Lakes. A true wilderness vessel, the Griffin was not a shipyard project. It was built instead along the banks of the Niagara River, several miles north of the American side of the falls. Although the Griffin was fitted out with weaponry, her stated purpose was to deliver supplies for la Salle's expeditions into New France, Setting sail August 7, 1679, with LaSalle on board, the Griffin left Niagara for Detroit, where several men joined the crew. The difficult maiden voyage took the Griffin from Lake Erie to St. Ignace through the Straits of Mackinac and into Lake Michigan. It anchored, finally, off the shore of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Soon afterward, LaSalle decided to send the Griffin back to Niagara in order to pick up men and supplies. Carrying a cargo of furs, The Griffin set sail on September 18, 1679, under favorable weather conditions. Once they left Washington Harbor, however, the ship and her crew of six were never seen again. The Griffin disappeared without a trace. As for what really happened to the Griffin, it very likely went down in a storm. But that hasn't stopped rumors of it reappearing as a ghost ship. For centuries, Sailors on Lake Michigan have claimed to see the ghostly outlines of an antiquated ship emerge suddenly out of a fog bank, but just when the ships seem about to collide, the Griffin vanishes. Others swear that the Griffin can be glimpsed on foggy nights still sailing out of Green Bay Harbor. Not surprisingly, sighting the lost Griffin is regarded as a sign of bad luck. The Griffin was the first ship on record to be lost in the Great Lakes. Since then, there have been thousands more. So let's head to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and explore the haunted museum ship Valley Camp, and why the most recent shipwreck on the Great Lakes may have everything to do with why the Valley Camp is haunted. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. The Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where the Valley Camp is located, is sparsely populated compared to the rest of the state, but incredibly rich in history. It consists of the top one-third of Michigan's landmass, yet only 3% of Michigan's population resides here. Locals are known as Youpers, 
a term derived from the term UP, Upper Peninsula, Uper. And if you live in the Lower Peninsula of Michigan, under the Mackinac Bridge, they affectionately refer to you as a troll because you live under the bridge, clearly. Many of you probably haven't heard of the Valley Camp. The Valley Camp is a lake freighter that served on the Great Lakes for over 50 years. Built in 1917 and retired in 1966, the now museum ship is 550 feet in length and features a variety of displays. More than 100 exhibits populate the ship's cargo hold. What once held iron ore, coal, and limestone is now home to displays showcasing maritime memories, shipwrecks, lighthouses, and local history. The ship is also reportedly quite haunted, which is why we're talking about it today. And I've investigated there, so I can vouch for this. But before we get to the ghost stories and the more in-depth history of the ship itself, it's vital that we explore the history of the very area it is docked, and then we can get into just what is being kept in that ship's cargo hold. Sault Ste. Marie was settled as early as 1668, making it Michigan's oldest city and among the oldest cities in the United States. According to SueStMarie.com, over the course of its history, the flags of several sovereign nations have flown over the Sioux. Over 2,000 years ago, Native Americans began to gather here for the wealth of fish and fur found along the rushing waters of the wide, turbulent river that linked the Great Lakes of Superior and Huron. Spring and fall were important seasons for these original settlers, and they called the area the Botting, or the Gathering Place. The area's first full-time residents lived in lodges framed of wood poles sheathed with bark or animal hides. The river below the rapids provided an abundance of fish for native peoples as well as several tribes from throughout the region who migrated here during peak fishing season. In the 1600s, French missionaries and fur traders began to venture into the Sioux. The traders began calling the wild area Sioux du Gaston. In 1668, the legendary Jesuit missionary and explorer Jacques Marquette renamed this burgeoning European settlement Sioux St. Marie in honor of the Virgin Mary, the first city in the Great Lakes region. While there is some debate on the exact meaning of Sioux, scholars of early French note that the word translates into jump referring to the place where one needs to jump or put into the St. Mary's River. This translation relates to the treacherous rapids and cascades that fall 21 feet from the level of Lake Superior to the level of the lower lakes. Hundreds of years ago, this prohibited boat traffic and necessitated an overland portage from one lake to the other. This is how Portage Avenue, the main street running along the river, acquired its name. Due to the strategic location of the river and the abundant natural resources found here, the French and British often fought over the area and the right to trade with the Native Americans in the 1700s. In 1820, the Treaty of the Sioux was signed, which turned control over to the United States in 1823. Fort Brady was built on the grounds of the old French Fort Repentigny, as the new Americans were concerned about possible British invasions from nearby Canada. This fort on Water Street was eventually abandoned in the 1890s and a new Fort Brady was constructed on the grounds of present-day Lake Superior State University. Throughout all of this turbulent history, the St. Mary's River continued to dominate the life and events of Sault Ste. Marie as it continues to do today. An important component to Sault Ste. Marie and an engineering marvel to behold in person is the Sioux Locks, Turns out they did not come about so easily. 
In case you don't know what a lock is, according to Wikipedia, a lock is a device used for raising and lowering boats, ships, and other watercraft between stretches of water of different levels on river and canal waterways. Locks are used to make a river more easily navigable or to allow a canal to cross land that is not level. So again, according to SueStMarie.com, in 1797, the Northwest Fur Company constructed a navigation lock 38 feet long on the Canadian side of the river for small boats. This lock remained in use until destroyed in the War of 1812. Freighters and boats were again portaged around the rapids at that point. Congress passed an act in 1852 granting 750,000 acres of public land to the state of Michigan as compensation to the company that would build a lock permitting waterborne commerce between Lake Superior and the other Great Lakes. The Fairbanks Scale Company, which had extensive mining interests in the Upper Peninsula, undertook this challenging construction project in 1853. In spite of adverse conditions, Fairbanks' aggressive accountant, Charles T. Harvey, completed a system of two locks in tandem, each 350 feet long, within the two-year deadline set by the state of Michigan. On May 31, 1855, the locks were turned over to the state and designated as the state lock. The federal government took control of the property and the lock system in the 1870s. Their stewardship actually continues today, administered by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The Sioux locks are the busiest locks in the world and include the largest lock in the Western Hemisphere, completed in 1968. Now, sailing craft on the Great Lakes date to the first ships constructed on Lake Ontario in the 17th century. The first ships on the lakes were built at Lake Ontario due to the natural barriers posed by the St. Lawrence River Rapids and the falls at Niagara. All the earliest Great Lakes crafts were brigs, schooners, or sloops of traditional European design. The ships were probably designed in either France and England by naval personnel. Between 1756 and 1763, the British and French were involved in the Seven Years' War. Shipbuilding during that time followed admiralty designs. Even so, the fore and aft schooner rig had begun to demonstrate its suitability for the confined waters and shallow rivers of the Great Lakes. Fore and aft rig vessels were lighter and more easily managed than square rig ships. Ease of maneuverability was also an important consideration in the lakes, where frequent course changes were necessary to navigate the twisting rivers and in the relatively limited sea room. Modern-day lake freighters, or lakers, are bulk carrier vessels. Since the late 19th century, lakers have carried bulk cargoes of materials such as limestone, iron ore, grain, coal, or salt from the mines and fields of the upper Great Lakes to the populous industrial areas farther east. The 63 commercial ports handled 173 million tons of cargo in 2006 alone. Because of winter ice on the lakes, the navigation system is not usually year-round. The Sioux Locks, for example, closes from mid-January to late March, when most boats are laid up for maintenance. Crew members spend those months ashore. Hopefully ashore somewhere in, like, Hawaii. The Valley Camp in particular was built by the American Shipbuilding Company in Lorraine, Ohio, and launched on July 14, 1917, as the Lewis W. Hill, a 1,900-horsepower triple-expansion steam engine and two coal-fired boilers powered the ship. During her career, the 11,500-ton ship logged 3 million miles and carried in excess of 16 million tons of cargo. 
The Valley Camp arrived in Sault Ste. Marie on July 3rd, 1968, and the Historical Society converted her into a 20,000-square-foot museum with over 100 exhibits. For the last 50 years, the Valley Camp has resided at 501 East Water Street in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Work on lake freighters was originally, and still can be, treacherous. The Great Lakes has a long history of groundings, shipwrecks, storms, and collisions. There have been over 6,000 shipwrecks in the Great Lakes, having caused an estimated loss of 30,000 mariners' lives. It is also estimated that there are up to 550 wrecks in Lake Superior alone, most of which are undiscovered. The largest and last major freighter wrecked on the lakes was the SS Edmund Fitzgerald, that sank in Lake Superior during a storm on November 10th, 1975, with the loss of the entire crew of 29 men. Carrying a full cargo of ore pellets with Captain Ernest M. McSorley in command, she embarked on her ill-fated voyage from Superior, Wisconsin near Duluth on the afternoon of November 9th, 1975. En route to a steel mill near Detroit, Edmund Fitzgerald joined a second taconite freighter, SS Arthur M. Anderson. By the next day, the two ships were caught in a severe storm on Lake Superior with near-hurricane force winds and waves up to 35 feet high. Shortly after 7.10 p.m., Edmund Fitzgerald suddenly sank in Canadian waters 530 feet deep, about 17 miles from Whitefish Bay near the twin cities of Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. A distance the Edmund Fitzgerald could have covered in just over an hour at her top speed under normal conditions. Although the search recovered debris, including lifeboats and rafts, none of the crew were found. On her final voyage, Edmund Fitzgerald's crew of 29 consisted of the captain, the first, second, and third mates, five engineers, three oilers, a cook, a wiper, two maintenance men, three watchmen, three deckhands, three wheelsmen, two porters, a cadet, and a steward. Artifacts on display at the Valley Camp include two lifeboats, photos, a movie of Edmund Fitzgerald, and commemorative models and paintings. The lifeboats were two of the very few items removed from the wreck, and one is almost completely ripped in half, demonstrating the severity of the storm they faced. They are quite a thing to see in person. Most, when viewing the boats, just go silent. It does feel as though you are visiting a gravesite. As far as hauntings on board the Valley Camp, you only need go as far as asking some of the employees. Many have had experiences on board, including a general feeling of unease when locking up at night. Staff and visitors alike have reported being touched or their clothes tugged with no apparent culprit. Some have seen shadow figures, while others have been overcome with feelings of an unseen presence on the ship. Numerous visitors have reported a heavy feeling in the area of the Edmund Fitzgerald lifeboats. A local team, the Upper Peninsula Paranormal Research Society, or UPPRS, has investigated the ship many times. In addition to a number of experiences, they have captured very clear EVPs, including one that says the name George. George Hull was the chief engineer of the Fitzgerald when it went down. So to talk with us more about the hauntings on the Valley Camp, I've brought my two very good friends, Tim Ellis and Brad Blair, from the UPPRS team. 
So we go way back. So there's a lot of reminiscing here, but they also play us one of their very clear EVPs that they captured while investigating the ship. So that is coming up after the break. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am sitting here now with Tim Ellis and Brad Blair, who are two of the three founders of UPPRS, a paranormal team located in the Upper Peninsula. They are also very well known for their yearly paranormal convention, Michigan Paracon, that I would say is probably one of the most respected paranormal conventions in the world at this point. And they have investigated the Valley Camp many times. I've investigated it with them. And so they seemed like the perfect people to talk to. So hello, guys. Hello, Amy. Hi. I was thinking about this this morning. Our history goes way back, especially Tim. So basically, way back in the day, we were part of paranormal teams that were part of the TAPS family network. And so for those who are not familiar, the show Ghost Hunters, which is kind of the OG of paranormal shows that I was on for a number of years, their team is called TAPS, and they had a network of teams they would refer cases to. And so Tim and I were both on TAPS family teams. And I think, Brad, you were as well, right? I don't think I worked with you as much, though. No, Tim did a little bit more on the side with that. Yeah. Tim was operating TAPS family radio, which was a podcast, and I was producing it. And I think this is going on like 18 years ago, which is pretty insane to think about. And so I was producing it. So I would basically find the guests and do some research on them. And then Tim would host the podcast. And then Jay and Grant from Ghost Hunters heard the podcast and they wanted to do their own radio show. They were working on Beyond Reality Radio. And so they stole me from Tim. Yes. <laughs> and I met them that way. And that's how I ended up on Ghost Hunters. So it is crazy how this all kind of comes full circle. I was just going to say it's full circle meeting back where we, we started. And I've never forgiven Jane Grant for stealing you, Amy. <laughs> uh, but hey, you know, you got to let it go at some point, I guess. 
I love, though, that we have all remained friends through all of these kind of different projects and iterations we've done. Like, I think that's probably one of my favorite things is that there are so many people that I met well before I was on TV that I still connect with. And so I I count you guys in that circle. And I love that. Well, we appreciate that. Now, let's talk about the Valley Camp. I find the history of these ships in the lake so interesting. I really wasn't that familiar with them until the first time I visited Michigan, thanks to you guys. So what brought about you starting to investigate there? Well, it's an interesting area. Uh, you, you can look at where the ship is docked. And to go back through the history, just Sault Ste. Marie, for a little bit of background, is Michigan's oldest city. And that's by European standards. If we go beyond that, this was a Native American fishing village for thousands of years, literally on the same block that the Valley Camp is moored right now is an ancient Indian burial ground. So kind of sounding like a, a takeoff from Hollywood there, but there, <laughs> there is a lot going on down there, a lot of history. And we'd started hearing stories, I guess, a few and far between when we were kids. Tim and I both grew up here in Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah, and it's a pretty special place when you grow up and you get to watch these uh, amazing feats of human creation, right? These ships that should not be floating <laughs> by, you know, by, by science standards, but they are. They're, they, they've created these monsters that cut right through our downtown area. So the Great Lakes and uh, the Great Lakes freighters is a big part of anyone who grows up in, in this corner of the world that we live in. So growing up and seeing the, the Valley Camp every day we were downtown and hearing the stories about it, of course, we were in awe of it, and you can tour it uh, during the summertime. Uh, it is open as a museum ship. And then uh, as we got older and, and started working with our, our team for paranormal investigations, it was just uh, it was a natural. We couldn't wait till we had a chance to finally get on there. And, and over the years, it's a handful of times we've been able to investigate the Valley Camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I've had the privilege of investigating it. And I have to say, you do set foot on that ship, and uh, it's very spooky. That's my professional term for it. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, I think you nailed it on the head with that professional term. Um, There's an energy the minute you walk across that gangplank and you get inside and you're surrounded by all that metal and steel and that history, there's an energy in there. There's no denying that. Well, and you look at the Valley camp and other ships similar to it, Uh, the Valley camp itself had served for 49 years. I believe it was just shy of 50 years on the lakes. And you had a crew of 29 to 32 sailors at a time that were living on board. So you've had so many people, hundreds of people that called that home through at least one year of service on the lakes. And that's a stressful job, especially back when that was on the lakes. There weren't quite as many safety features as we have now on the current freighters and shipwrecks were a risk of daily life. Well, in, in, you know, the Valley Camp being built as it was 1917, think of how old that was. It was built with a coal-fired engine. So mm-hmm. even the the conditions of people having to have to work ba- in the back part of the ship shoveling that coal in, I mean, I couldn't even imagine what it was like on a hot summer day down in that area and you're by those boilers and shoveling that coal in. I mean, the work standards back then, uh, no thank you. O- OSHA wasn't jumping in at the time. <laughs> no, they weren't. No, and it's not hard to go back through historical records and find, you know, a lot of accidents that took place on these ships. And there were a number that like ran aground or there were shipwrecks. And I'm sure the Valley Camp was no exception. And 
like you said, the conditions are just wild that these men worked under. And that kind of brings to the point the boiler room area. Now, is the boiler room, I'm trying to reacquaint myself in my brain. The boiler room, is that in the very, I never get these terms right, the back of the ship, like the... Aft? Yes, aft. (laughs) That would be the word. Yeah, (laughs) In the aft and in the bowel of the ship. Yeah, down low. Okay, because I do remember investigating in the aft section, and you can kind of separate yourself pretty easily there because it's way in the back, away from everything. And that was probably one of the more active areas for us. And I feel like maybe that is either could be attributed to just what went on there uh, stress-wise and work-wise, or maybe there was some sort of incident there at some point. But we heard a man coughing in there at one point. And then there was at one point, we were all standing, I think I probably had eight or 10 people with me. And we were all just aware of who was there in this group. And it's dark. It is very dark in that area. I don't remember if there are even windows, but we were there in the middle of the night. And at some point, we all realized that this man who had been part of our group, like this shadow was just not there anymore. And everyone had kind of just noted this person, but then suddenly everyone just kind of noted that the number of people seemed off. And this woman said, wasn't there a man standing right here? And I was like, I thought there was too. Did someone move? And there was, but there was no one, no one moved, no one owned up to it. It was very strange because a number of us saw it. And that's happened to me one other time at the St. Augustine Lighthouse where someone kind of joined our group. <laughs> and so have you guys gotten any particular activity in that area? You know, shadow figures aren't uncommon on the Valley Camp. I think it was our first investigation that we ever did. Um, Michelle, one of our team members, Mm -hmm. we heard her give out a yell and she'd been alone in, it would have been up above. That's right. It would have been, I believe, in the kitchen area. And Mm -hmm. said the shadow shot across the room. It looked like a man. She thought it was someone else on the team. And all of a sudden it took off across the room and into the back. And again, the kitchen area would be right top above, directly, right above. Up, right. Yeah. Directly above where you were, Amy, mm-hmm. in the, uh, the coal area. So same part of the ship, just on the upper deck. Right. And yeah, I do remember that now too, because there are stairs going up in that direction. So that definitely caught us off guard. <laughs> so the, the what other house as well, uh, shadow figure has been reported by numerous guests along with some of the staff of the Valley camp. Yeah. We've heard, uh, gotten even reports from the workers there who have come to us with tourists who will come and psychic self-proclaimed psychics and that, that will come up to them and say, is this ship haunted? And of course, you know, they embrace their ghosts there. And, <laughs> and so, you know, many a times those shadow figures have been spotted by other people as well. And you had mentioned hearing a cough in the boiler room that was actually captured by one of our own investigations too. We captured that as an EVP and it would, to this day, it's one of our favorites that we've gotten over the years. You know, I actually have it. I think Tim sent it to me. So let me play it really quick. Cause I, let me play the whole thing first. Almost like a conversation. Somebody just coughed. Or just sounding like coughing. That is so wild. I just got chills. I did too. I've heard this a hundred times. So clearly this, like, I am coughing. Yes. Yeah, um, that that voice you hear, that first voice you hear, that's actually Brad. And he's in there with uh, another group. We were doing a, a pay to play, what we call. Well, we did a, a we, we did a fundraiser. I don't remember for who, but what, one of the local charity organizations. Yeah. And we had set it up that we, we raffled off a ghost hunt for two. And it would have been one of our Halloween shows, I mm-hmm. believe, that we did. 
And we were right down in the coal room, which we were speaking of earlier. And it's just such an eerie feeling down there. There's still chunks of coal and it's so dusty and so dirty. And this is an area that they don't normally allow tourists down into as part of the tour. It's, Mm -hmm. it's very congested, very dangerous. And we heard what sounded like somebody moving at the time. And that's where you hear me saying, you hear that. And it sounded like somebody coughing. One of the young ladies that won the contest with us said, and you could hear that that was plain, very plain. That yeah. was, that was audible to the ear. And then a, as I'm saying, you know, it sounded like somebody coughing or you hear that voice go over it. And it says, I am coughing very definitively male voice, very yes. gruff. I am coughing mm-hmm. as if somebody that would have been working down in that room in the conditions that they would have been under while the Valley camp was sailing. So it is difficult to investigate on a boat of any kind or ship because there's always this kind of background noise and you really have to acquaint yourself with it if you're going to spend any amount of time on there and be familiar with what those sounds are versus sounds that might be paranormal. What I like about that is that it's clearly close to the microphone and it's clearly not you because it has a, a different cadence, and B, it doesn't sound like it's even in the room with you per se. Like you all have kind of an echo. This is more of like a very clear whisper. It's very strange. Yeah, right. We heard the cough. Just to clear, clarify, we heard the cough, but we did not hear that I am coughing. That didn't come up until we did review. Right. So the cough, though, was that caused by someone there who was living, or was that like a disembodied cough? Honestly, we think it was disembodied. It was nobody in our group, and we were far enough away from the other groups at the time that I don't believe it was somebody else that was there. Yeah, that's strange. Because that, that's, again, that's we did hear a cough in one of our groups at one point, just this kind of really gruff cough. It makes me wonder if there's maybe some bit of history that we have not found yet, or maybe something happened on board the Valley Camp that involved something in the coal room, because that's a lot of activity like that, especially in that. Yeah. And, you know, that's one thing about the Valley Camp, even in our research over the years with it, is we've never found like this dramatic incident that there was a large loss of life on the ship. But keeping in mind, it is now a museum ship and there are a ton of, of artifacts on that ship now that were from other shipwrecks and loss of life. So there's this accumulated energy that's in there now that comes from those items as well. So Whether whatever we caught there was actually from the Valley Camp to begin with or as an attachment, we don't know, but there's so many artifacts on that ship now. Right. And if you look at history of the Great Lakes and and shipwrecks, a conservative estimate is at least 6,000 ships have gone down on the Great Lakes Mm -hmm. and loss of life better than 30,000. And that's that's conservative. If you go back prior to the mid 1800s, they really weren't tracking this. Yeah, that's true. I had no idea. (laughs) That is wild to think about. And I mean, we've seen hauntings that are just surrounding an object alone. I don't necessarily think it's important for there to have been some sort of tragedy or loss of life in a space just to make it haunted. And I think that museums are kind of a perfect example of that. Like I, I investigated the Titanic exhibit a couple of times, you know, the idea being that those objects were haunted. So I can see why this would be the same. And I mean, that being said, I think probably the most notorious 
exhibit there is involving the Edmund Fitzgerald, right? How do you feel about that? Do you think there is something coming from that as far as paranormal activity goes? Yeah, and it's a great question. I mean, it's certainly the most um, solemn area of the ship, as far as I'm concerned. When you walk to that area, you just pay respect to those 29 lives that were lost on the Fitzgerald. And in that room then, surrounded by the names of all those that are lost, is this lifeboat that is ripped right in half, caused by the strength and the fury of Lake Superior on that night. It ripped this lifeboat completely in half. That lifeboat, eventually what was left of it, washed up on shore and became part of the museum at the Valley Camp. So there certainly is that thought, that wonder of 29 lives lost instantly. I mean, one wave came in, crashed that ship. They went under and never came back up again. So that quick of loss in one area, who knows? I mean, it it, it certainly lends itself to that, right? Yeah, and quite literally, too, because those bodies were never recovered. So, no, not one. You know, the trans, the radio transmissions from that night, I was going through and listening to them again. They, you know, for lack of a better word, they are haunting. It is very hard to listen to because you can just kind of hear the urgency in everyone's voice. It was just, it was such a tragedy. So, and, and really puts into perspective the dangers that these workers faced every day. You bet. We, uh, on one investigation, and I know Tim knows exactly what I'm talking about right away, we were playing the final radio transmission between the Edmund Fitzgerald and the Arthur M. Anderson, which was the ship that was following it through the storm that night back in November of 1975. And we were conducting an EVP session while we were playing this in the background, thinking that it might stir something up. This was in the room that the Edmund Fitzgerald lifeboat is Mm -hmm. in. And somebody came across one of the two-way radios and said, hey, you guys have to get up here right now. And we got a little bit agitated because we were right in the middle of this session. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and we said, well, we're kind of bit, no, you need to get up here right now. So we're playing this final communication between the Arthur Anderson and the Fitzgerald right before the last words off the Fitzgerald were, we're holding our own. Mm. And after that they disappeared from radar and were never seen again yeah so we get called up so we run up the flights of stairs well we don't really run anymore (laughs) but we make our way up the flights of stairs and get to the back of the ship and the rest of the team is sitting there staring and they're just yards out in the saint mary's river the arthur m anderson is passing wow yeah not not supernatural but the synchronicity the synchronicity was so bizarre it wasn't lost on anyone that was a powerful moment and everyone just stood there in silence uh, almost in respect of the very ship that was in contact and then the coast guard asked them to turn around they were ahead of the fitzgerald and the Mm -hmm. coast guard asked the anderson to turn around to go back into the very storm that just sunk a ship to try to find survivors and they did reluctantly but they did so The Arthur M. Anderson is still one of those ships that sails the Great Lakes today that every time you see it come through the St. Mary's River by Sault Ste. Marie, you just kind of stop and watch. You're just kind of in awe of it, of what it saw and witnessed that night. And that night, it was so powerful to see that ship. Wow. I don't think there are any accidents when it comes to things like that. Right. No, No, the timing was so bizarre. And Mm -hmm. we, we just stood there in reverence. Yep. Yeah. What other areas do you think? have activity or or are there any other artifacts on board that you think might be causing activity 
you know, oddly, there's there's a theater that doesn't have any artifacts in it. It's just a number of ships, and they they show a film on the Fitzgerald and on some of the the shipwrecks of the lakes. And we were in there one night with the ghost box, trying to do a session. Absolutely nothing was coming across, and you, this was one of the old school shack hacks, and it was just white noise coming at you. And we finally got to the end of the session, and I said, "Well, I guess it's time to wrap this up." we'd like to thank you for allowing us to be here and try to communicate with you tonight. And that was the one communication we had come across it after I said that was your welcome mm-hmm. came very clearly through the box. Yeah. And that very same room, uh, one of our first investigations on there, the door was closed and there was a light on. So you could see the light coming through underneath part of the door. And a couple of the members of the team actually saw what seemed like a shadow kind of pacing back and forth in the room in there. And of course, upon investigating and opening the door, there was no one in there too. So we've had a couple incidences in that theater room as well, which is kind of, as you walk in the plank to enter into the ship, it's, you just walk up a little bit and it's around to your right. If I down on the lower floor though, but it's about midway through the ship. Right. I actually remember that space because you told me about that when I was on there. And so I did do some EVP work in there while I was investigating and we did get a a very gruff male voice and I wish I had the recording. I don't, but we did get a gruff male voice in there. And the nice thing about that room is that you can just like close yourself off from everything. So you don't have kind of the echo that's some of the more open areas of the ship. And so completely silent and we played it back and there was this male voice. And I do think there was a woman there with her son. And I think that they had enough at that point. (laughs) (laughs) I think sometimes people go into these investigations and they think it's going to be spooky and fun and then something actually happens and they either get very excited or sometimes they just suddenly find a reason to go home early. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Sitting in the comfort of your living room watching the TV shows and seeing that happen, I think is a lot different for some people and they don't realize it until it happens to them. Right, exactly. I'm remembering because I did just go through the history, but I feel like it's like 500 feet long. Is that sound about right? Or I think it's 550, right 550. in that range. Yeah. yeah. And now it's been a museum ship at this point for over 50 years. Right. Uh, yeah. It came to the Sioux in what, 68, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. Yeah, 1968 is when it finally came here. Um, it had been decommissioned, I believe, in 66. Yeah, 66. They'd logged over 3 million miles. If you can just think of the, the range that that ship's been through. Oh, yeah. And, the, and here's, here's the interesting thing I find about the Valley Camp, because old maritime legend is once you name a ship, you don't change the name. Exactly. Uh, right. Otherwise, it brings bad luck. But the Valley Camp was actually, uh, when it first was built in 1917, was the Lewis W. Hill. And did not change until 1955 when it was sold. It actually went through a couple different sales, but stayed the Valley Camp through the last two sales. But uh, yeah, so the fact that they changed the name through its career, I've always found very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, he was like a railroad magnate or something. You know, he was he was a very famous railroad man. I, and so I think he did he own it initially. I think he might have owned it initially. Uh, that I'm not sure. That's, uh, I'd have to look into that one. Uh, you're talking about, uh, Lewis Hill. Yeah. Cause I was going through, cause obviously when you're researching, like I was first looking at for Valley camp and then I realized it had a different name, which I, you're right. I had not really seen before with a ship. And so then I had to kind of restart and start researching when it was called the Lewis W Hill, which, you know, posed a whole new set of problems because then everything about that man started coming. Right. Exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, I mean, they were the ship itself was owned by an actual company, uh, the American Ship Building Companies, who built it. Mm. Um, so I don't know. He maybe had something to do with the actual company that owned the ship. It was part of a fleet. Mm -hmm. So maybe he had something to do with it. Right, right. A lot well, of the transportation companies were intertwined. Yeah, back in those days. The lakes and the mm -hmm. railways. Yep. Mm -hmm. I could see that. So you had brought up earlier just kind of the general history in that area. It is very rich. Like I know having investigated Mackinac Island a number of times and things that like the indigenous people, the Native Americans that were there originally, there is so much to that. Do you think that that is affecting the hauntings on the Valley Camp at all? I think it could just for the, the same, just simple reason. We've investigated two adjacent properties to that mm -hmm. that have both turned out to have activity in them. And just down the road and, and where it's located, right on the St. Mary's River, next door to it is a huge hydroelectric plant. There's so much energy in the area. And running water through the St. Mary's River. Mm -hmm. We have right next to it as well are the historical homes, which right. were moved from different parts of the, of the city back in the day. So there's kind of like this perfect storm, if you will, to allow... Uh, energy to be created right where the Valley Camp is. You've got this huge metal ship right on running water, right next to a huge hydroelectric plant <laughs> next to more historical homes. So you just kind of mix it all up and, and, and you get this uh, kind of perfect storm for energy to survive. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that regardless of its paranormal happenings, it's a very interesting place to visit. That whole downtown area is very, it's very fun. It's very cute. Not in January or February. But <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the first time we investigated Mackinac Island, it was January or February. And that was, it's one of those times that I look back and I think back on it fondly. And I'm glad we did it. But we were on that island for two weeks. And when I was there, I really was not into it. But <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a funny story about that. And I don't know if we've ever shared this with you, Amy, uh, over a beer and a glass of wine. But so our group, the Upper Peninsula Paranormal Research Society, we had been working with Mission Point Resort, which is the main area you guys investigated for that episode. And we had been talking to Mission Point and we're getting ready to come over to do an investigation. And we were maybe a week or so out and we get a phone call and they're like, uh, yeah, we just want to let you guys know, have you ever heard of a TV show called Ghost Hunters? <laughs> we're like, yeah. They're like, uh, we're going to put you guys on hold for a bit. We got them coming into film. We're like, gosh, darn it. You got you kicked like, to the curb. Rooney, again. <laughs> again, yes. Thank you, Amy. <laughs> so they put us off uh, for that moment. You guys came over in the winter. And then in that spring, as soon as the Straits of Mackinac opened we, up. We, we took were, the first ferry across and, and they gave us a resort for the weekend. Yeah, it was an amazing, amazing experience. Yeah, that place, we're going to have to do a whole other episode on Mackinac alone because it, it's a fascinating place. I mean, there's a lot going on in the UP. I can see why you guys have like a full-on paranormal team going on there. I can see why you have that amazing convention going on there. There's, you know, haunts-wise, there is no shortage. You would never know that. And then also there's all kinds of like UFO things going on up there too. So there's a lot of weirdness where you guys are. There really is. And I think that's why Brad and I love it so much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, crypt, it allows a lot us of cryptid to, sightings, a lot yeah. of ufology, good sea monster. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, we've got a little bit of everything up here and maybe it's the winter that makes us that weird, but <laughs> I mean, I enjoy it and the people are always wonderful. 
Let's talk real quick about the convention, just because I want people to know we are investigating the Valley Camp during the Michigan Paracon this year. This is the second time we've done it. Adam Barry and I will be doing a private investigation there with people who want to join. So just tell them about just the convention and, and how they can find you guys. Yeah, it's uh, August 25th through the 27th, 2022. This will be our 12th annual. Should have been the 13th, but COVID bumped us yeah. a year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and all, all of the info, we're still updating. We're still getting new speakers in, new workshops, new galleries. You can find it all at miparacon.com. And MI is in Michigan, so miparacon.com. It's wonderful. I mean, I think I've been for the last 10 years. I think there was one year I couldn't make it. I even was there hugely pregnant one year. Yes, <laughs> yes, you were. Yes, you were. You had to be escorted around to make sure maybe that she didn't decide to come then. And uh, yeah, we remember that. That was, that was dedication. Yeah, it was. It was. That was my that was my last event before I tucked myself away and waited for that child who ended up being like two weeks late. You know, she's so but now she's nine, which is so crazy. Unbelievable. To think it really yeah. is. So I think actually I'm going to bring her with me this year. We're going to try to make I think we're going to make a little vacation out of the whole thing and do Mackinac. That would be fantastic. We'd love to have her there. We, we you know, you, you share so much of her on social media. So we feel like we've watched her grow up as well. And <laughs> uh, it would be great to have her there. And she can, we can remind her that she was here at one time in Mama's belly. <laughs> and, uh, and But now she gets to experience it. Amy, I just want to take a quick second to thank you, though. In the intro, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, MI Paracon is one of the most respected out there. That means a lot to us. Uh, we've worked hard over the years to make it that way. We know there's a lot of things that have gone wrong in the field with stuff like that, but thank you for those words. Cause that means a lot to us. Yeah, absolutely. I love all the work you guys are doing with the team, with the book, with the Paracon, like you guys are always up to something. So it's, it's it keeps us out of trouble. Boy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. Seriously. I, I know what kind of trouble you guys can get into. So <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time and I super appreciate it. And I will be seeing you guys soon this summer. Yes, you will. So it's an honor, Amy. Thank you for having us. We Thanks, appreciate Amy. it. Of course, anytime. Before we go, I did want to point out that in 1976, Gordon Lightfoot composed and recorded the song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which obviously was done to commemorate what happened with that ship. Now that I know so much more about it, it is a particularly haunting tune, so if you have some time, give it a listen. I know so far on Haunted Road we've tended toward more well-known haunts than, say, the Valley Camp, but it's nice to take a stroll off the beaten path every once in a while and discover something new. Plus, we get to learn a lot of history. Not to mention, the Valley Camp poses all sorts of questions and theories about what causes a haunting. Certainly, high strangeness and history surrounds it, and the Edmund Fitzgerald lifeboats may have everything to do with what's going on there or nothing to do with it. But I find that sometimes putting places like these into the public eye often brings forth some answers. So regardless, a trip to the Sioux should be high on your list of destinations in the U.S., just maybe not in February, as I learned, unless you're extra adventurous. So maybe I'll see you all there this summer, though. Until next time, I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. If you want to join us on a spooky vacation, please check out my company, Strange Escapes, at strange-escapes.com. 
Also, new episodes of Kindred Spirits are currently airing on Travel Channel on Saturday nights at 10, 9 central or streaming on Discovery+. Plus. Special thanks to LakeEffectLiving.com, SueStMarie.com, The Book Supernatural Haunts by Tim Ellis, Brad Blair, and Steve LaPlante, and the Chippewa County Historical Society of Michigan for making great resources for today's episode. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Amy Bruni. Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Research by Taylor Hagerdorn, Amy Bruni, and Robin Miniter. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.